We're continuing our sermon series through Revelation. And as we're going through Revelation, um, we have now begun to go into the, the passages where, it, where the Apostle John addresses the seven churches. Uh, last time, P.T. Uh, talked about the first church that was addressed in the list, Ephesus. Talked about how Ephesus had forgotten about their first love. And it's a reminder for us to come back to remember Christ, our first love, to worship him and all that we do. Tonight, we're going to look upon a second city, Smyrna. And in this passage, in this short passage that we're going to look at, we're going to see how Smyrna went through a lot of trials and suffering. And we understand that suffering is an expected part of our Christian life, right? We, if you're, you've been Christian for a while, if you're even new to the faith, you read through scripture, you understand that suffering is part of a Christian life. It's something that we all go through. We suffer because we live in a sinful world. But more than that, Christians suffer because we try to live righteously in a sinful world. We try to live for God in a sinful world, in a world as an enemy of God. And so we aren't like the rest of society. We, we, we go against the trends, against the current, and it's difficult. That's why suffering comes, more so especially for those who are faithful. And, and when we talk about something like this, right, when we think about suffering, a lot of times we might just think in our heads, I have a final coming up or I have a midterm coming up. And yes, those are trials. Um, sometimes we're going through stuff in life and relationship problems or we're dealing with a family member. And, and those are indeed trials that go through as well. And a lot of times we are afraid to get go through these trials. We're afraid of going through suffering. And a lot of times we're afraid of doing so. We're afraid of going through these periods of time because we end up becoming so worried about ourselves. We end up becoming so worried about, about our comfort, about our security, about, about losing something that's dear to us. And what has happened when we think through about this is that this has really impacted the way we may try to live a bold and courageous life for Christ. Right? When we're talking about suffering in scripture, yes, those sufferings I mentioned are true sufferings, true trials that a lot of us go through. But most time when scripture speaks about suffering, it's, it, it comes in a realm of persecution. It comes in a realm of us trying to be faithful and people hate us for it. And we fear that kind of suffering the most because that kind of suffering gives us no security in this world because we are only defined security God, when we go through these kind of trials. One thing about the state of missions today, uh, I think about America as a, you know, I guess around the world, we're, we're known as a Christian nation, but, you know, we know that's far from truth living here. Um, but, but there has been a history of missionaries sent, being sent out from America to the world. And I will say now, it's died down a lot. And I, I think it's not just because churches aren't being faithful. I think they're trying to be faithful. I think it's because our culture has become more self-centered, which has impacted the way for us as American Christians try to live our life. Right, think about for a moment, for instance, Netflix. Awesome. I watch Netflix. I'm sure you guys watch 
watch Netflix, you guys watch TV shows, movies. It's great. Everything's on demand. You can binge through a whole show if you want to, or you can stop and go. If you don't like it, just stop it, choose something else. It's, it's, it's all very self-absorbed because you can make these decisions. You have these choices. But one other thing about Netflix is that's also accessible anywhere, as long as you have internet, right? And, and that's impacted missions because there are, I was reading this one article about how long-term missionaries who've gone overseas have a really hard time disconnecting from their hometown, their home country, and really engage themselves into the culture they're trying to immerse into because they have the internet. They have stuff like Netflix to connect them back, to make them reminisce, to make them miss home. And, and yes, they miss home, but it also stops them from really truly engaging missionally, culturally with the people that they are, they are called to minister to. It has impacted them. And we can think about this in all the same way about the way we live our lives here. What are ways and comforts that are really hard for us to let go because we're afraid of letting them go and we're afraid of giving them up for the sake of the kingdom of God. As we're going through this passage today, we're going to see how Smyrna, the church in Smyrna was willing to give up these things, to give up these comforts of this worldly life in order to live a faithful life for Christ. And that, that brought upon major persecution and trials upon this church. How did they do that? How did they live in such a way? What kind of encouragement does John give? This is what we'll take a look at. So turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, looking at verses 8 to 11. This here is God's word. Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty. But you are rich in the slander of those who say that they are Jews, but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. As you take a look at this passage, just first think about the context. Let's talk a little bit about Smyrna. The city of Smyrna, I just grabbed this off the internet. I don't even know who to give the rights to. Um, and so this is current modern day um, well, it's not modern Smyrna. Smyrna is actually located in the modern-day uh, region called Izmir, located in Turkey. And this, so this is what it looks like in modern day with all the lights. You see all the lights kind of, you kind of see a little bit about what the context of this, of Smyrna was located. It's located next to a harbor, and it rises up on a hill, right? So there's a hill next to it. So the city is kind of built upon this hill. And that's where the ancient city of Smyrna is built like. It was, it was talked about being standing from this harbor up the hill, up, uh, I believe it's called Mount Pegasus there, right? Um, the, the little harbor there is, is the Aegean Sea, and, and the sea was built this way. It was a harbor city. The ancient city first existed around 1000 BC, um, and then 
it was destroyed in 600 BC and then rebuilt, uh, I think by the Persians in, 200, in 290 BC and eventually taken over by the Greeks and the Romans. And so it was part of the Roman empire. And this city was a prosperous, beautiful harbor city, right? Even now we looked upon it, just the lights, you see the lights just going up from the harbor up the hills, right? And in a similar way, the city was built, it was, it was a prosperous and beautiful city. And, and many people will comment how as the houses lined up around the hill and circled around it, it from far away, it looked like a crown. Smyrna was a prosperous, beautiful city. It was also a loyal city to Rome. It was part of the Roman Empire, and it was, it was a loyal city to Rome. Uh, it, it built a temple to even worship Rome right, within the city. It built a temple to worship Rome. And so the Roman emperors was rewarded Smyrna. We wrote this mirror for their loyalty. They, they gifted them a lot and they gave them, they upheld them and they, they would protect them from enemies. And so the Roman empire um, in Smyrna were on really friendly terms. And so in the, in the light of this context, in the light of this context, understand this is a beautiful city, a prosperous city. So it's wealthy, it's comfortable. There, there are good terms with the government so you don't have persecution coming down from the top level. Um, and it was built you know, next to a major trade route. So it was getting, it was flourishing. And in light of this context, you see then the Christian church. The Christian church of Smyrna stood then opposed to this culture. Right, we, we saw here already is they're, they're going through certain sufferings. They're poor. They were worshipers of Christ, not of Rome. And they did not seek the comforts that come from being part of the Roman Empire, being part of this city. In many ways, Smyrna, the church of Smyrna, should be like the way we live here in a wonderful, I don't know, LA, Walnut, Diamond Bar, just this um, comfortable, prosperous area that we live in. And therefore, the church of Smyrna faced persecution. And so they need encouragement. And John gave them encouragement. John gave them encouragement and he encouraged Smyrna, the church of Smyrna, to endure faithfully through their pending tribulations. And he does so by saying, look to Christ. Look to Christ who is their pending reward. And so those are our two points, pending tribulations and pending rewards. The first thing we're going to see here is the pending tribulations. The pending tribulations. And here we see, starting in verse 8, we notice here that the angel of the church of Smyrna is said to write this, the words, the first and the last, who died and came to life. And so we know these words here, this encouragement comes directly from Jesus Christ himself. This is Jesus speaking. And we'll come back to this verse. Let's take a look at the conditions of the church. Looking at verse 9, we see Jesus here. He says he knows. He knows your tribulation and your poverty and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not. We get here the current conditions of the church. We see they're going through tribulation. This is not just a momentary trial. This is a great long-term suffering that seems to have no end. Talking about their poverty. It's not just poverty, like they just filled out a tax return form or losing money. 
it's this poverty where they're even lacking the basic needs of life. They were the ones who were probably on the streets in the midst of this wealthy city. And they were facing slander. Slander, accusations, false accusations from, and it says here, from those who say they are Jews and are not. And so we get here a sense of even perhaps their own kindred brethren falsely accusing them. Perhaps many of the Christians there were probably once Jews who converted to Christianity. And so these were probably family members, neighbors, fellow friends who are now accusing them, accusing them of all these false things. There, there's, there's, a, there's a bunch of false accusations for the early Christian church. The early Christian church faced a lot of slander. For instance, the Jews back then will claim that the, Christian, the Christians, they were cannibals because they talked a lot about eating the flesh and blood of Christ, right? Communion. And so the Christian church was claimed to be cannibals. And that's against the law of Roman Empire. So that was something that they, they accused them so that they may get tried by the Roman Empire. Or they'll claim that Christians are atheists. Do I? I mean, we know we're not atheists. We worship God. But the reason why they will claim that we are atheists, they'll claim that Christians are atheists, is because the Greek culture, the Roman culture, had many gods. They're polytheistic. And yet Christians will say there is one God. And so they'll claim that they are atheists because why? How is there only one God? There's many, right? The culture will say, will say yeah, this is something that's, that doesn't make sense, right? And so they'll think that they're atheists. Um, they'll, they'll claim that Christian church were arsonists because they talk, we talk about the fire of the spirit come down upon us, right? And so they'll claim, they'll claim the church to be atheists. Um, and even a, and the Jews will also claim that Christians are destroying families. And we can understand this because the Muslims will claim that now too, because when, when they convert to Christianity, they are now disowned by their own family members. And so they're breaking apart families. They're disowning families. And we see here these accusations against Christianity, against the early church. They're, they're not just accusations of, oh, you just don't shove in the gospel down to me. These are like accusations that can be, that can be taken really seriously. I can really throw people into prison and jail. We face certain accusations similarly today. Claims that just are really unfounded and untrue. Accusations for our culture today can be, for instance, Christians are unscientific, which is not true because I know many of you guys are part of STEM majors. Right? You guys, and we, we, we're, we're, we believe in that, right? And yet do we claim that we're unscientific, claim that we are patriarchal and and sure, there are some churches that struggle with patriarchal male dominant culture, but on the whole world, we actually try to lift up both genders. And they'll claim that churches are oppressive when really scripture teaches us that as Christians, we are to be humble and gentle to one another. And we get all these kind of false accusations all the time throughout the ages. And there's no different here for the church of Smyrna, slandered by those who say they are Jews and are not. But here it says they are a synagogue of Satan. Synagogue of Satan. Probably the, uh, the term here, all commentators are trying to figure out, you know, what does John mean by synagogue of Satan? I, 
to be honest, I don't really know. I, I my best guess is that synagogue is probably where is it's where the Christian church actually first met because Christianity was part of Judaism, right? Before it stemmed off Judaism. And and so when they first were to gather, they actually gather in the Jewish synagogues. And so they're all part of it together, but soon later they got kicked out because again, these Jewish brothers didn't believe in Jesus Christ as Messiah and didn't want the Christians around. So they end up forming how we end up forming house churches and worshiping within the homes. And so then these synagogues no longer became a place of God's people. Now is a place for of Satan, those who are against God's people. That's why I think this following means. But what we see here is that there's a certain division between Jews and the church because the Jews don't believe in Jesus Christ the Messiah. Now, there are these some Jewish brothers who have converted to Christianity, who have converted to the truth to follow Christ. We see that here in the church of Smyrna. We see that even today. Right? We, we know of Jews today who are, who are being converted by God's grace. But all we're trying to get to here is to see, is to recognize that there is persecution coming upon the church of Smyrna, both from the Jews and the Romans. During this time, the Roman Empire was no longer friendly to the Christians. And they were friendly to Jewish people, but not so much. They, they were, the Roman Empire is really starting to crack down upon all these different religions that did not follow the Greek, the Roman gods. And and the reason why they kind of allowed Jews to be Jews, because Jews were kind of, were identified as Jews just based off their ethnicity, based off their nationality, right? This is just part of culture, part of who they are. And they weren't really imposing upon Roman society. But the church of Jesus Christ was different because the church of Jesus Christ was evangelizing, was spreading the gospel, was making waves within the city and was turning people away from the gods of the Romans and turning them towards Christ. This was changing society. And so there's persecution also against the Christians from the Romans. So there's persecution coming down from the Jews and the Romans. And so we have then a church in Smyrna where really all they have is themselves and God to lean upon one another. Let's take a look here in verse 10. This is what Jesus has to say to the church in Smyrna. He says here, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. This is, what we see here is that Jesus did not promise to relieve the Smyrna believers from affliction, right? Notice that here. Jesus is saying, do not fear. You're going to go through more. You're going to go through more suffering. You're going to go through more persecution. And this is, this is something that we are to wrap our minds around, to, to understand that when we are to live faithful here, suffering will come. Faithfulness here has a cost in the world. Faithfulness to God has a cost in this world. And Jesus says that the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. Some, so you'll, you'll be in prison, you'll have persecution, you'll have tribulation, uh, 10 days, probably a literal 10 days, but it can also be just understood that this is just going to happen. This is gonna, you're going to face this, and something will even face death. Something will be martyrs for the faith. And as this church of Smyrna was facing all these afflictions, 
Jesus reminds them in the middle of verse 10 that this is a test. This is a test, a test of their faithfulness, a test that will refine their faith in God. And this is what all trials are meant to do, right? James chapter 1, verse 2 to 3, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you, are, for you know from the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. We see here that the trials that we face, especially trials that we face when we're trying to be faithful for God, it's meant to mold and sharpen our faith even more. This is the reality of the Christian life. We will face suffering. And God, he promises relief. He does promise us peace. He promises us joy. But he doesn't promise that kind of relief within this lifetime. His promises will find its final fulfillment in the internal kingdom. When all sin is wiped away and we are raised up again from the, from, from the grave into our glorious body. And so what we face in today is all in preparation for that. First Peter chapter 1, verse 6 to 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes through it is test though it is test though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ all this leads to a final reward and what that means is that your life as a christian will be one that's marked with suffering until death And so the question is for us, for you guys as collegians, some of you guys have graduated, looking, on, looking to move on into grad school or to a career. Some of you guys have just started college and you're trying to figure out your major. And other of us are just trying to finish. As we're going through all this, what are we trying to pursue? Because if you're trying to pursue a comfortable life, you may get that. But notice, recognize that a comfortable life is not promised by God. There is a peace indeed that you can find in Christ. But that peace in Christ does not mean you will be free from discomfort and hardships. There's indeed a blessing to be found in following Christ. But it doesn't mean it will come in riches, in a, in a warm bed, in an AC-cooled room. Well, having peace in Christ means, it means having a joy and contentment in the midst of your suffering. And understanding that no matter what trials you may face, you continue to cling on to your true hope and treasure, Jesus Christ. We see this in Romans chapter 5, verse 1 to 3. Therefore, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. This is a great verse. Does be remember that we are to rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Because we stand 
in the grace of God. And that is the greatest gift any one of us can receive. That has a gift that transcends anything that we can face in this lifetime. And so what are you pursuing in your life? What are you pursuing and hoping for in your own walks? Because I, I know as collegians, we're fighting for something. We're trying to finish well our schools, trying to find a job. And those are all good things. But where is your hope? Where is your dreams? Where is your heart find its true joy? And, then, and, where, and where Jesus points them to, where Jesus is trying to show them is to say, hey, remember to cling to me. Remember to stay faithful to me. And why? Because there is this great reward at the end. And that leads us to our second point, the pending reward that awaits, that awaits all believers. And we see here that this pending reward is promised to us. It's guaranteed to us. It's one that we possess now even. Note in verse 9, says here, right, that Jesus knows your poverty, but he adds in this little saving. He says, but you are rich. You are rich. You are spiritually rich. And what that means is that there is this future reward. Yes, it's future, but it's presently guaranteed and it's a presently experienced richness that we can live out now. Well, we, we, we see this in so many passages throughout scripture. James, going back to James, James chapter two, verse five writes, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? We see here that God chose us not because we're rich in this world, but because we are poor in this world, so that we can look towards the future, look towards the eternal kingdom, and see our glory there. Despite any tribulation that we may face, despite any poverty, any kind of lacking that we may face in this life, we remember that our inheritance to heaven will never fade. This is the context of First Peter that we just looked at for talking about the testing of trials, testing of our faith. But right before that, Peter writes this, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time and, and the last time that last phrase right there flows right to the context of revelation because revelation is about the last time you see even when we die and we reach heaven today that is we haven't reached the fullness of the richest as promised to us that's going to come in the last time the end times the eschatological future time we're talking about enduring to the end to receive that reward that God has promised this church. And what is that reward? Well, back in Revelation chapter 2, we see here in verse, <clears throat> we see here in verse, sorry, lost slide. verse 10, Jesus says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. The crown of life. 
the crown of life here becomes a symbol of eternal life that we have in Christ. And we see this kind of symbol coming up in different ways, talking about eternal life in different ways throughout these seven churches. Last time in Ephesus, we saw here talking about the tree of life, right? The tree of life is there. And one commentator puts it this way, comparing the crown of life to the tree of life. It says, as the tree of life is a symbol of the blessed immortality in Christ, so the crown of life appears to symbolize its full consummation. So the tree of life becomes a symbol of immortality. The crown of life symbolizes that this is now being fully consumed by us. This is our great reward that we have gained. This crown represents the eternal treasure kept in heaven for us. And this crown here, it's... It's interesting how Jesus gives it to the church of Smyrna. Because as I described, Smyrna is of the city. People said it looked like a crown going up from the harbor to the hills, promising great wealth and prosperity. And yet, Jesus said here, don't live for that crown. Live for this crown of life that I will give you. I will give you. This crown here. This crown here um, in the Greek, this, this word for crown, it, it wasn't this crown that you, that you imagine worn by kings, by royals, by, by those who are in you know, majestic positions. But this crown was more, of, more like a wreath worn by athletes who have won a race. We see the same word used in 1 Corinthians 9. Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, crown, but we an imperishable. This is the crown that every believer receives when we endure to the end of the race self-control in every way. We see this. James chapter 1, verse 12 says, Blessed is the man who who remains steadfast under trial, for he has stood the test. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. This is what's promised to us at the end. In the crown of life, it's full consummation, meaning we are going to live an eternal life. What that ultimately means is that we will not face a second death. We will not face a second death. And what is then the second death? Well, the second death refers to the eternal judgment that all unbelievers will face in the lake of fire. In other words, for us as believers, we will indeed experience the first death. Our bodies are one minute closer to our death every single day, every single moment. We will indeed experience death in this lifetime. But what is promised to us is we will not experience the second death. What is the second death? Well, turn me to Revelation chapter 20. Sure, some of you guys have looked at this in your midweeks. Let's take a look here. Revelation chapter 20. We'll, we'll get more into detail in this when we get to this passage at the end of the series. But I want us to take a look here about what is this second death? What are we talking about here? Well, Revelation chapter 20, verse 6. It says here, Blessed and holy is 
the one who shares in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power but they will be priests of god and of christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years so we see here in chapter 20 this is talking about the millennial kingdom we don't know that term that's okay we'll get to that but this here is talking about here, the millennial kingdom, the thousand year that Christ will reign. And what's going to happen in the beginning of that is that Jesus Christ will raise up all dead saints. This is the first resurrection. Dead saints will rise up, receiving their glorified bodies, reign with him for a thousand years. And says, for these saints, and most likely we will be amongst these saints, over such the second death has no power but what's what's then this still hadn't told us what the second death is so as we keep reading we see here that after a thousand years satan will actually be released from his bondage he will gather up an army of unbelievers and and this is partly maybe referred to as a second resurrection where the where unbelievers are risen up as well and they are coming up as an army against god they're gonna and they're gonna wage war against god against his kingdom against christ and a great battle will ensue, will ensue and in the but in the end god will win god will win and satan will be thrown to a lake of fire look at me at verse 14 it says here then death and hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Satan thrown into the lake of fire, death in Hades. And we remember back in Revelation chapter one, it was said that Christ had the keys to death in Hades. He's the one who's in complete control over them authority over them death and hades satan for the satan will be thrown into a lake of fire this is the second death but we if we jump to chapter 21 verse 8 we see that all unbelievers will also face the second death revelation 21 verse 8 but as for the cowardly the faithless the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. All unbelievers will face the same fate. This, this should one give us comfort, joy, knowing that all those who are enemies of God, all those who falsely accuse Christians of being what they are not, all those who attack God's church will face this judgment. This brings us comfort, but this also brings us a certain urgency because all the people that we do know who aren't believers will face this second death. We will all face death. We all recognize that. But this second death will depend upon whether or not you believe in Jesus Christ your lord and savior do you believe in christ are you willing to submit your life to christ and do you wish to see your unbelieving friends and family members come to that same knowledge of jesus christ because the only way to escape the second death if we come back to revelation chapter 2 it says here he the one who conquers 
the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. In the Greek, this is emphatic, will never be hurt by the second death. How do we become conquerors? How do we conquer over this? What does it mean to be conquerors? It means we become victors over sin and death in the work of Christ and who, acknowledging who Christ is as our Lord and Savior and submitting our life so that we are in Christ and part of his body. We look towards Christ, which is why verse 8 becomes all so much more important. We are to look to Christ. We look with me in verse 8. It says here, it says here, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Jesus Christ is the first and the last. He's the one who died and came to life. In the Greek, it emphasizes how Jesus became dead. He really entered the state of death. And then it emphasizes how Jesus now lives. He lives. And, and, and the, the, the tense of the verb, lives, came to life here in the Greek. It's not saying that he lives forever. That's not the tense there. The tense here specifically talks about a way of conquering death. In a way that he was in the state of death, but no longer is he in that state. He is now alive. He has conquered death coming alive. Jesus Christ is the one who has conquered sin and death. And when we live our life in him, through him, we conquer the same. Our lives no longer become ours, but we become a fragrance of who Christ is, of his death and life, both of which manifesting in our lives in the way we remain faithful. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 to 11. This here demonstrates to us what faithfulness to the end looks like. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 says this, but we have this treasure, and this treasure refers to the gospel, to our knowledge of Christ. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Verse 10, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. Why? So that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. So that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Verse 12, so death is at work in us, but life in you. What we see here in 2 Corinthians is that when we live our lives for Christ, when we come to a saving knowledge of Christ, both his death and his life live in us in the way we remain faithful to him. His death lives in us because we suffer for the gospel. We suffer for our faithfulness. We suffer for being the church here in the sinful world. And so we become corrupt. We become perplexed, we become um, 
persecuted. We are afflicted in every way, struck down. But in the same way, the life of Jesus lives in us. The life that he lives because he has conquered death. And so we are not crushed. We are not driven to despair. We are not forsaken. We are not destroyed. We live the life and death of Christ. And that's what it looks like to be faithful to the end. This here is faithfulness personified. What we get here is that faithfulness is not about how well you live. But really, it's about how well you die. How well you die. Faithfulness focuses not on how well you may serve God, but on how well you suffer for God. Not saying that we don't serve God, just saying that you may be you may be the best event planner, the best small group leader, and that's all good things, all awesome stuff, but that's not what faithfulness is ultimately about. How well do you suffer for God? You continue to cling on to Christ as your hope. You continue to cling on to Christ as your joy, as your ultimate contentment. Because it is Christ who ultimately gives us this crown of life. And when we receive that crown from Jesus, we will reign with him. A crown as a symbol of our eternal life with Christ. And so then, the big idea for all this is to remain faithful. Remain faithful and courageous through your tribulations by looking to Christ as your eternal reward. And we see here in, in Revelation chapter 2, this is the encouragement given to the church of Smyrna. This is the encouragement given to the church of Smyrna, and they went through a lot. Now, what was the result of all this? Because we don't know much about Smyrna, like if you know, we, we, we know about Ephesus because there's a whole book written to the Ephes to the Ephesian church by Paul. Um, but Smyrna, what 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 history do we know from them? Well, there's there was a where's one ch early church father, well known. And I'm gonna go in a little bit into church history because it's important for us to look into church history to, to understand um what has come before us in the faith. Back in the early church, there's this well-known church father named Polycarp. Polycarp. So, um, and it's and this Polycarp, he was he probably lived around the time when John wrote Revelation, because it's, it's known that Polycarp knew the Apostle John at a very young age, and so Polycarp grew up when John was still alive, and he probably received this letter of Revelation. He probably received this letter from the Apostle John. And as Polycarp grew up, he became a great preacher, a great teacher, a defender of the faith. And during that time, there's a lot of heresies going around. There was a lot of heresies that was trying to deny Christ as deity or Christ as human. All this battle about who Jesus Christ is, about whether or not he's fully God, fully man, and what he what, and all that. And Polycarp defended Jesus, defended the gospel. He fought against heresy. He was a well-known preacher in that time and he grew up in the city of Smyrna and what happened to Polycarp what's most well known about him was that he was martyred for the faith it was said that he was stabbed to death but even after he was stabbed to death because the Romans knew that 
the Christians taught about resurrection, they were they're like, okay, let's take his his dead body, let's burn it to a stake so there's nothing left, so that they can't claim that he rose from the grave. Just burn it all. And so after he was dead to death, he was burned to a stake. But before all that happened, as Polycarp was put on trial, the Roman proconsul urged Polycarp to deny Christ, to deny Christ. And this is what he said. Polycarp said this, 86 years have I served him, and he never once wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who has saved me? That's amazing. 86 years, he preached Christ. He recognized Christ's faithfulness to him, and he endured to the end. I like to imagine, because he probably read this letter from Apostle John, who he knew. He was probably encouraged to remain faithful unto death, knowing that he'll receive the crown of life. And the, Smyrna, the church in Smyrna knew this too. After Polycarp died, they honor him by gathering what remains. What remained after the fire was probably just his bones. And they honored him, celebrated his day of martyrdom and remembrance of what he did for the faith. What church history teaches us here is that the reason why we exist here today, the reason why we are here in this room listening to God's word, free to worship God, is because of the blood of many faithful Christians before us who died for the sake of the gospel so that it can reach the nations and eventually reach our ears, our hearts, so that we may be saved. Remember that the faith we walk is one that's filled with suffering. And we are to remain faithful to the end because there is a great reward. We may all go through different seasons of life. And our seasons of life may be chocked full of difficulties and hardships. Some of you may be going through one right now. And some of these hardships, you had some that may be our own faults. Some of them are not. Some of them may be caused by other people. Some hardships may come and we just don't know why they come because God just simply allows it and we, just, and we don't have any answer. And a lot of times as we're going through these trials, as we're suffering for things, we focus so much on enduring through this trial, enduring, enduring. We're just hoping to get through it. And, and, and sometimes we get so consumed by that thought of enduring through this trial so that we may just get back to normal life. When this ends, when we finish this final, when we get over this health problem, when we return back to normal. When we get through this suffering, get through this hardship, we will find peace. But we have to remember that that's not always the case. That when we remain faithful to God, there will always be some trials, and some trials will last a lifetime. You see, we are not to be consumed by what we want now in this world, but we are to be consumed by what we want from Christ in heaven, the crown of life. And so when we go through trials, especially any trials that you may go, be going through because of your faith, maybe it's 
from family members, maybe it's from friends, maybe it's from your professors, whatever the case may be. The question is not always, can I endure? Sometimes that you may ask that. But the question, what it must always be, what you must always ask yourself when you're going through these times is this, am I being faithful during this trial? Am I being faithful during my suffering? Am I continually looking to honor God throughout this period of life? That's what's most important. Be faithful unto death. And I, Jesus, will give you the crown of life. Let's pray. Father, we come to you. We ask, Lord, for your endurance, your spirit to gird us, to strengthen us, to help us in our deepest sorrows and our deepest hardships and trials. And Lord, I pray that we would then remain faithful, remain faithful to the end, that Lord, we will continue to honor you in all that we go through, that Lord, we will continue to worship you, knowing that you are our hope and joy. May we look upon past believers, church history, church fathers. We look at Polycarp and how he remained faithful to the end. Let us look at them as examples, remembering that they have suffered for the gospel. May we too suffer for the same great cause and reward. May we continue to look to Christ as our hope and savior. And as we look upon this world, as we were seek to remain faithful to you let us also continue to have compassion for those who may not know you to pray for them to build relationships with them to share the gospel with them so that they too may come to know the great news and not experience the second death lord may we continue to do this and live in this way father I ask that you will help us all because this is hard. This is hard to do. And so let us then find our strength in you alone. Let us keep our eyes focused on Christ. And let us remember the great reward that awaits us in heaven. Thank you, God, for your saving grace. Thank you, Lord, for being there for us, for guaranteeing our salvation. Thank you, God for the many blessings that we can experience now, even if we don't actually have it now. Lord, thank you for all that you have given to us. Be with us in our discussion groups, in our community groups. Let us continue to worship you during this time. I pray all this in your holy and precious name. Amen.